Hello, and welcome to another episode of Undead Matter Conversations, about where life lies in the ever-turning matter of our universe. I'm Sophie J. Williamson, and in this episode, one of my favourite writers, Daisy Hildyard, speaks with microbiologist Karen Lloyd about her discoveries of deep, deep-sea microbial communities, where microbes that are 100 million years old hover at the edges of organic existence. Intertwined in their conversation are readings from Daisy's beautiful and thought-provoking book, The Second Body. What do an American barn owl, a Zimbabwean hippopotamus, and a Norwegian reindeer have in common? What they have in common is that they all have a relationship with your body. They are all, in some sense, your responsibility. There is a way of speaking which implicates your body in everything on Earth. Dead whales have something to do with you. The disorientation of the waxwing is indirectly your problem. The freak storm and the changing seasons are consequences of actions performed by your body. Meanwhile, in the human world, there are car bombs still going off in Baghdad every day. Does this have anything at all to do with you? Moreover, a teenager in Kolkata is missing a thumb and you are wearing a pair of inexpensive gloves. Is there any connection there? I wondered if you could start by telling us a little bit about what it's like to work in these silent spaces, so at least in the sense that there aren't many other humans who frequent those places. Yeah, I mean, I think one challenge in working in places like this is that most of them you can't really go to. You know, I can't really get into the earth the way I want to. I would love to put my body into the earth and sort of swim in it like you can in the ocean. And, you know, if you work on coral reefs, of course, you can move about your coral and and look at things. And I can't really do that inside earth. In some ways, it's kind of a fun challenge. Like, how do you see things that you can't really get to? And, you know, we do our best to try to get as close to it as we can. We go down in submarines, we drill down with deep drills, whether it's in permafrost or underneath the oceans. But another way is to wait for it to come back to you. So there's a lot of pressures crushing things all the time over Earth. And so some of that forces some of this water and gases and stuff up to the surface. And so we try to be passive observers as well. What is it like down there? If you were to be able to swim through it, what's the mud like? Like, what does it smell like? I mean, I have no idea whether it's kind of very solid or hot or, you know. Yeah. It's all those things, depending on where you are. So, you know, think about the mud if you're in a mud flat, just anywhere along a coastline that's not very active. It's really stinky. Like some people find it very unpleasant. It's like rotten eggs. But that's wonderful. I mean, that's the product of the microbes that are doing all these activities. But then if you go out in the deep ocean, sometimes that smell is not so intense because sort of all that more active stuff has already been worked through. And so when you get sort of the deeper muds, it just kind of smells like clay or salt. And what do you do with it when you've used it or when you've analysed it in the lab? What happens to the mud? (laughs) That's a great question. This is something that is uh, plaguing to those of us. You know, you get these precious samples. You've worked for years to get access to them and you put a lot of resources into getting them. And then 
sometimes you can't take them all. And so some of this precious leftover mud, you have to kind of toss over the side of the ship, which just like is painful. <laughs> but for the actual part that we use, uh, we destroy it completely. We use different chemicals to process it. We shake it, we freeze it, we thaw it. Sometimes we microwave it, whatever we can do to like crack into the cells that are inside and get their DNA out and get their proteins out and get their molecules out. So it's kind of so thoroughly explored and like seen from every possible kind of angle or in every sort of chemical state? Every is a huge word. I mean, I try, <laughs> I try to, to get as many different angles as I can on this stuff. I mean, we all do, but there's no way that I can get the tests that I want to get of say a single parcel of mud on my own because I can't be an expert in all the different types of measurements. So I don't do anything on my own ever. I can't actually test this stuff with just the resources that I have or my lab has. I have to work with other people. So it's always a we. This idea of a body which can reach over to the other side of the world is not one we tend to speak of in everyday language right now. In normal life, a human body is rarely understood to exist outside its own skin. It is supposed to be inviolable. The language of the human animal is that of a whole and single individual. You are encouraged to be yourself and to express yourself, to be whole, to be one. Move away from this personality, self-expression, and you risk going out of your mind, being beside yourself, failing to be true to yourself, hearing other voices or splitting your personality. It doesn't sound good. This careful language is anxious, I think, threatening in a desperate way. You need to take care of yourself, it says. You need boundaries. You have to be either here or there. Don't be all over the place. It's interesting because in some of your emails, you spoke a little bit about the kind of who of who you're studying. So these kind of unknown microbes and that there's a convention within a lot of scientific research to study them as colonies or as kind of vast groups. But you were saying that perhaps you're beginning to study them as individuals. So that's the weird thing is that historically, microbiology has only looked at microbes in a pack because it's hard to do measurements on one individual cell. And, you know, until maybe the late 90s, that was pretty much impossible except for imaging just individual cells, at least for tiny microbes. And remember, I'm not talking about human cells. Human cells are much bigger and people have been doing single cell work on human cells for much longer. But for microbes, it works just fine to treat them as a pack, to grow them up in a test tube and measure what comes out of the, what gases are coming out, what things are going in. That sort of shorthand is fine. Like it works great. You can figure out that E. coli can use glucose as a substrate. It works awesome. But when you deal with microbes that might be living on much, much longer timescales, then I'm starting to get curious about whether it's relevant to think of them as individuals, whether a single cell sort of matters in the same way that like a single human matters to each of us. It's a foreign concept, at least for the type of microbiology that I've learned. Very much so. And it, I mean, it's really interesting to me as a novelist, because I suppose that the kind of flip is the case in fiction, that it's it's kind of very, very difficult to think about telling stories about humans. I mean, there are fields, I suppose, sociology or anthropology that think in terms of collectives, but it's quite unusual. I suppose there aren't many humans who practice that kind of thought 
and we tend to think of ourselves as individuals and to tell stories about even unusually charismatic individuals. So it's kind of a really fascinating sort of dark side of reality, I suppose, to think about these bodies or, or masses, and that's the kind of ground for thinking about that. The word animal, like the word nature, is one which can include the human or exclude it. I know that I am an animal, that in fact I have been able to talk to pheasants. I also know that I am not the same thing as a rotting foxtail. If I found a rotting human limb sticking out of a hedge, I wouldn't take it home as a birthday present for my dad. Is a human an animal? To be an animal is to be an individual and also part of life across the world. So you sent me also a really interesting article by Joseph Fellino, which was very much a scientist's article, partly in mathematics. So I was kind of, you know, half in and half out of it. And I found that he's writing about a distributed metabolic network organised by maximum entropy production. He's discussing a shift on focus from organisms to a focus on functions within an ecosystem and talking about how that seems to expand the possibility for thinking over time, for making things more predictable, perhaps. And that seemed very interesting to me, that this sort of facelessness or mathematizing an ecosystem in one sense is kind of terrifying, I think, to humans or to many humans. But at the same time, it's full of this kind of exciting possibility for understanding the world in many different ways and new ways. I just find it fascinating that we have this view of entropy has to be produced. So if you've got a boulder teetering at the top of a hill, give it enough time, it's going to fall. Like that's, that's just what happens. Like energy gradients are destroyed. It always happens. But the thing that makes life life is that life solves energy gradients. It ruins energy gradients but in a really complex way. We do it by creating order, which if you think of it in too narrowed end of a view, you say, we're magic beings who are going against thermodynamic energy gradients. And so we're, we're special in that we are the ones who get energy from rolling the ball up the hill that gives us energy to use to extend my metaphor. But that's just because if that's the way it appears, it's because you're not looking in a zoomed out enough view. Like if you look at it in the broader sense, the energy that we put into creating order as life forms is energy that's lost to the universe. And that is the entropy that we're creating. And so by making these really complex forms, by um, you know being so intricate, is we let off a lot of steam. We made a lot of heat entropy happen with that. And maybe the, the loss of the heat entropy is the point. It's kind of mind bending for a layperson, I think, to think about this, you know, rather than energy creation versus energy loss. And I suppose the subsurface also seems like this very literal kind of ground of darkness, I suppose, in a metaphorical sense, you know, of kind of unknowing. And I wonder how you relate to that, that you're exposing this field of mystery. And I suppose at the moment there's particular tension there, isn't there, because there's this huge pressure on science to kind of save the world and know everything. But there's also this growing understanding of the hubris of finding out one thing and then applying it without necessarily knowing all of the consequences. And so, you know, that's a big load to navigate, I guess. And when you're working in this field, I mean, I guess this is always the case for humans, but it does seem to be particularly the case for scientists that you're working with mystery and darkness and not knowing 
I guess you must have to believe in the utility and implementation of the things that you're working with. Yeah, I absolutely agree with the conflicts that you articulated. Those are things that I feel very viscerally. But at the same time, I try to think in the longer view and I don't feel pressure to have a utilitarian use for what I'm finding right now. There's a sort of virulent strain of thought in the States right now that, you know, your research has to be practical. If you're not solving a problem, you're not doing something. And my gosh, that is going to stifle humanity if we all do that. Like if we if we all say, I'm not going to explore this unless it's going to make someone more money or save a life or make somebody happier in an immediate sense, then we're going to miss out on so much. So I am one of many scientists who just don't try not to worry about that thought so much. And instead, I try to find the biggest, most ridiculous questions, like impossible to answer questions for me that I feel like I have some expertise on, and then try to meet it in the middle, try to come up with some way to get a little bit closer to it. Can you give us a a sense of how those questions are framed? I mean, are you asking something very theoretical or is it a practical question that you pose to yourself? Because I could imagine either could be huge. Yeah, I mean, we can ask ourselves multiple questions at any given time, which is fun. But I love the idea that we are trapped in our time frame and way of thinking. And I mean, this is just one of the concepts that I'm kind of obsessed with. And I just love the idea that there's this overlay of another world that's the same world that's with us. But there's an entire ecosystem, not one ecosystem, multiple ecosystems who are not playing by the same time rules that we are, that they're operating on a different plane, but right next to us. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about the longevity of some of the species that you're working with and how their kind of systems work. Yeah, I cannot answer the question of how long a single cell lives because we just don't know. And actually, Sophie asked me before this, will we ever be able to say how long a single cell lives? And I don't know. That's one of these fascinating questions. Like, how can we test that hypothesis? I'm not sure. But what we can say is we can look at the total energy that's available to a population, divide it by the total number of cells in that population. We know some really basic non-negotiable rules about how much energy goes into creating biomolecules and say, this whole population does not have enough energy delivery at a certain rate, so power, to divide more than once every 300 years or 50 years. And even then, they may not be dividing. They may just be replacing broken parts. They have to turn their cellular biomass over, but it's just like, oh, that lipid part of the membrane got broken, so I'm going to re-knit that up. And, you know, my DNA got a little damaged here. I'm going to fix that. The idea of an individual molecule being so important that it repairs itself and really, like, works to sustain itself and, and survive is antithetical a bit to this population view of of microbiology. I just think it's a natural consequence of there just not being enough energy. Then you have to say, well, why? (laughs) Why are they doing this? I mean, that's like live fast and die young. You know, there's a certain amount of food. So be the one to eat it. Make your one cell baby that you get to make and win. And then, of course, everybody dies because there's nothing left to eat. But we haven't really solved that question yet. And so the paper that I wrote, Time as a Microbial Resource, was really fun. I don't usually get to write papers like that full of ideas and not so much data, but I sort of have this concept of what are they waiting for? Well, they may be waiting for things that happen on longer timescales than we usually think of biology reacting to. I mean, the idea that that a plant doesn't die at night is silly, right? Of course the plant doesn't die at night. It knows it's going to get sun the next day. It can eat tomorrow. This is not shocking to any of us, but if we zoomed in on our timescales and we like 
had very, very short timescales where night seemed like forever. We couldn't even envision the sun coming up again. Then the idea that there would be a plant that would wait that long would be incredible. And so I think that's what we're doing with the subsurface is that these organisms are waiting for something that's incredible to us. But to them, it's like, yeah, I'll hit a volcano someday. Those kind of ideas of periods of dormancy made me think about, you're probably familiar with a very old, it's about a century old article now, or book, I think it was, but slim book, on Umwelt, so von Wexkull's Jacob or Jakob von Wexkull. It's kind of enjoyed a sort of resurgence of interest recently. And the famous analogy that he talks about is constructing this idea that the way species relate to an environment is entirely dependent on their sense world. So he writes very beautifully, I think, about a flower in a field might be a home to an ant or food to a cow or hair decoration for a woman who walks by or a man. He doesn't say that. He writes about the, the tick, the, um, a tick in a forest who can rest in a kind of state of dormancy for decades on a tree. So in some sense, this is just absolutely pathetic compared to your microbes. It's only, you know, in a handful of years. But his kind of extrapolation from that is that the tick will remain dormant until mammal blood, warm blood, something warm-blooded passes by. And so for the human, the forest might be this kind of rich sense world of colour and light and pattern and shade and smells and sounds. But for the tick, what Wexkull takes from that is that the whole forest is just this particular compound in mammalian blood and that is their world, you know, and they will just be not alive unless they are alive to that. And I wondered how you feel about that. I mean, I would guess that you don't think your microbes have consciousness, but I mean, how do you relate this to the idea of experience or living, if you're kind of living in these incredibly, you know, mind-bendingly long periods of dormancy, and then you're alert to the movements of a, I don't know, some kind of geological movement at a scale that's kind of almost incomprehensible to humans? I don't think that they have consciousness in our way, but I think that ranges and how organisms fall on the the big continuum of this stuff. For Gina, animals exist in the background of a blurry video taken on a phone. These animals are uncovered by patient research, are located in paperwork and images, records and testimony, and these are the places from which they vanish. She discovers bodies by doing sums. There are more mink pelts than there are fur permits. When Gina is looking for bodies, she looks into her computer, at spreadsheets, quarantine records or scans of travel documents. She scrutinises diagrams which represent the movement of bodies in different formal structures, bar graphs and pie charts, and arrows which show the directions of movement, like weather fronts or like capital, around the globe. All of Gina's creatures are always moving. By contrast, for Richard the Butcher, animals exist right in front of you in flesh and blood. He knows his creatures inside out, 
an afterbirth in the straw, hot milk dripping out of the mother's swollen body, her head pushing against other heads at feeding time, wiry hairs caught on the scratching post, heels digging in when you try to drive it up the ramp, compacted mud stamped out from between the trotters, the shit pouring out, the stunned flesh, the stiff flesh, the boiled ham, pink threads on the shop floor, sandwiches. You eat what's put in front of you. To me, Richard and Gina seem strangely similar. They were both deeply involved with what they were doing, and there was something brutal about them both. Richard clearly, the bloody cleaver by his keyboard, but Gina was more brutal than Richard. She had a cool, professional relationship with violence on a scale which you and I cannot even picture. People choose what to look at. And there is such a fine line here between between life and non-life, particularly for the, the way you're working with presumably incredibly complex machinery, which is constantly at work. And then you're working with these species that are very much not constantly at work or not in a way that we can kind of apprehend. I really struggle to see the line between life and non-life. Um, it seems like it's not... I mean, it's there, right? Like we we sort of agree what's life and what's not life, but there's no um, generally accepted definition for what life is currently. Um, because every time somebody comes up with one, uh, we find an exception. So um, catalyzing energy gradients is a, is a good one. Schrodinger sort of came up with, with I don't know if he's credited with it, but he's he sort of pushed this forward. And that's important for life. And that's one of the key things that life does. But you can have self-sustaining chemical reactions that seem to to do this on their own. Personally, I try to make a distinction between what is natural, what is nature that I'm trying to, to understand, and what is the human conscious construct, the boxes that we put nature into. Um, and for me, that line of what's life and what's not life does not come organically from nature. That's something we impose on it. And that's interesting and important because I live in human society and that matters. But It's not important to me as a scientist. I just don't care. I thought about Richard and Gina after I let my pigeon go. It had crossed over from one to the other. From Richard's world, a body, a piece of meat. I could have wrung its neck. It had flown off to somewhere only Gina would be able to find it in a satellite image, or perhaps a body of data. What does a pigeon look like from space? The answer is obviously like nothing. I found that article of yours so interesting. I've been interested in the Greenland shark. I'd love to write some fiction about it, which lives for hundreds of years, at least, you know, three centuries. It's such a slow being. There's this detail that it tends to hunt prey that's sleeping because it's too slow to chase anything. Metabolism is so slow and partly because of that, because of those metabolic processes, it's able to live for much longer than these kind of talked about live fast, die young species. And so it's quite tempting at the present moment to transfer this to the human world and to think about the rapidity of progress and consumption and to take it as a parable or something. But then what you said in your article was so much more interesting that these microbes are using time as a resource and that time can be kind of manipulable, that there might be adaptable relationships with time that perhaps even transform what time is. I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about that. Time is how we perceive it in some ways. 
We think of microbes as using an arsenal of tools to approach life and to reproduce and, and all the things that life does. We think about different energy sources, the idea that they use chlorinated compounds like the chlorinated dichloromethane that people spray on planes or trichloromethane to clean off jet fuel from engines is something that really came about in great amounts when humans hit the scene. But there's tons of microbes naturally in the soil who look at this xenobiotic, this weird, strange new thing as food. And so they're actually degrading it and helping us. We think about that a lot. We spend a lot of time as microbiologists talking about the range of things that microbes will eat or places that they will live. Can they do like super salty places, stuff like that. But something that I would just like to get more in the consciousness of my colleagues or anybody is just that time is also a resource, that they can play with what's available with time in the same way that they can play with what's available for chlorinated compounds or salt content or whatever. Like it's just yet another type of gradient that they can exploit. Money, bodies and chemicals are moving around the globe in different configurations. They set off complex interactions and so it becomes impossible in a technical way to rule anything out of a relationship with anything else. Everything is in relationship with everything else. It's a bewilderingly promiscuous worldview. This impulse of climate change, says the academic Timothy Clark, disrupts the scale at which one must think, skews categories of internal and external, and resists inherited closed economies of accounting or explanation. When we look at the global body, it is impossible to relate that body to anything individual because there can be no certain borders between one thing and another. We do not know what is relevant to the individual body and what is outside it because the atmosphere and the individual body are inside one another. Therefore, we cannot help seeing every individual as a part of the whole world. The whole of life becomes a mass and it becomes impossible to differentiate one thing from another. Thinking locally in this context makes it impossible to observe an individual pigeon flying over the northeast of England, or to observe individual humans adjusting their thermostats in different ways, or to acknowledge that some humans do not have access to a thermostat at all. The second body appears to pose a threat to the first body, the real one, the one you live in. Any body which is global cannot accommodate an individual who moves in her own individual way, who makes individual choices and has individual thoughts. This global body, which is entirely without boundaries, doesn't understand that individuals exist at all. You use this analogy of a person building to help explain to your reader, I suppose, how to think on these scales. You use an analogy of people building houses on the California coastline. I'm going to quote a little bit because it's a lovely passage. To observers on the human time scale, such ultra-slow organisms would appear to be doing nothing. As an analogy, the California coastline is a constantly churning mass of rocks over the geological time scales but to humans it is stable enough to build houses on. These houses must be sound enough to withstand the occasional earthquake, 
but they will not survive the reorientations of land as they are spun, submerged and exhumed over the course of a few million years. It made me think about the biblical parable of the man who builds his house on rock and the man who builds his house on sand and who builds his house on sand gets washed away. And in, of course it's not really that because, you know, of course it is quite pragmatic to build. Nobody wants a house to last a million years. But again, you know, there's a kind of question about what we call progressive societies working at scales where we assume a kind of baseline of time and construction and life that is very much a human scale. And I suppose people like you are working beyond that scale and exploring beyond that scale so much. I wondered if you had any thoughts about whether humans in general or wider populations are coming to connect with these more than human scales and also maybe how they might come to apprehend or think about or live inside these more than human scales. We humans have lots of ways that we try to connect over much longer time scales. You know, our oral histories, our written histories, our literature, our religions. I believe that a major reason that we're compelled to do these things is to connect ourselves over bigger and bigger timescales. But I sort of look at all, all of that human society and think that's pretty limiting. I mean, that's just what we've created for ourselves as one species. Not that I believe in species per se, but if you look at the natural world and things that we're not driving with our consciousness, there's also examples for how to connect over longer and longer timescales. I think that if we have this sort of urge, which we seem to, to reach over long timescales, then it's nice to do it through other means in addition to what we create for ourselves. And do you think if you were to live on the timescale of these billion-year-old microbes, how would it change or reframe the way you live? That is a great question. I don't know. What would you do? Well, I mean, it's just, it would be such a huge change, wouldn't it? I mean, I suppose essentially it feels like it would therefore be immortal or immortality and entirely deathless, but I suppose not. So, you know, I'm not sure that I would live my life differently for billions of years than forever, but I guess that's maybe about my perspective, maybe to a microbe that, you know, mortality would still feel there's a huge difference. Yeah, you kind of think of it as like gears in a, in a big machine. You know, you can only interact with gears whose tines match up with your own. And so we're tied up in, in the fast-paced world and these microbes are tied up in their slow-paced world. And we don't really care that much about each other. You know, it would only be the idea of living for a billion years would be really sad if the gears you were trying to connect up with die every hundred years. Like that would just be tragic beyond compare to have people die constantly in your life. So if you did suddenly find yourself in the situation of having to live for a billion years, then I think you would get some new friends. <laughs> you just naturally gravitate towards things that can like move on your periodic rate. In order to see your second body then, we need to move closer. The Earthrise picture shows you the whole world but you can't see individual lives in it, only mists, gases, and abstract emissions. There's a sense of horror, which apparently comes from the fact that your body is a physical thing with porous boundaries. Nobody in the world can be completely insulated from the atmosphere. The atmosphere can be influenced by any living body. Therefore, each body is involved with every other living thing on Earth. Your first body could be digesting a piece of bread in Lagos at precisely the same time as your second body is acting on the internal organs of a seagull in Kamchatka. 
the activity of a certain species of alga in the South Pacific has determined the composition of the air that you're breathing right now. For the second body, there's no stable boundary between one species and another. We're all in the same boat. It's a reminder that stability is an illusion, right? Do you know about zero-point energy? This is the energy that's intrinsic to a molecule when the temperature has reached absolute zero. So there's no extraneous energy. It's just the intrinsic energy of the molecule, and it's never zero. If I look at like an apple sitting on my desk, it looks like it's sitting still, but we know from quantum mechanics that it's not, that all of its individual molecules are vibrating at some certain frequency within that apple. At the same time, we can look at these long-lived microbes and say, well, those are stable, they're not doing anything. But it's just a question of your time scale, your time and your space scale. Once you play with that, there's really nothing that's not in motion. Can any of these insights, can you see places where they touch down directly in your kind of banal, ordinary existence? There are these kind of truths and then there's this kind of de facto reality and often they feel like very, not so much far apart from each other as kind of just completely distinct. I just finished reading your book and Mike, can I talk about your book? Yeah, of course. I think you just had a really great example of it with you talking about the second body. So this part of us that is not physically within the bounds of our immediate body, but it's the gases that we exude, it's the decisions that we make that have a sometimes global effect for climate change or for movements of people. And um, I was sort of going along a single track and in your book and thinking about, yes, climate change is bad and we should work on mitigating our, our greenhouse gas emissions. And then at the very end, you mentioned going down to the docks and seeing people desperately trying to flee their countries and getting to other countries. It was a moment where you're standing there at the docks, the other person is standing there at the docks, you lock eyes with each other, but you're operating in completely different spheres. And we can make those barriers. We can pretend like your sphere of vacationing and their sphere of desperation are completely separate but they're not. They're tied on a grander scale of the decisions that we make affecting people's movements and also in the immediate scale of you're breathing the same air in that moment. I found that very powerful. If you look, you could probably find moments like that all the time in your life, everywhere. And when you confront them, they do feel to be just completely sort of impenetrable barriers. You know, you literally kind of can't cross the gate. Of course, like so much of the work that you do exists in that world, though, in that it is exploring this quite psychedelic reality, I suppose, and then slowly, sometimes, and as you say, not necessarily or inevitably, but often these insights that feel so open and so distant from, you know, making a cup of tea or whatever, do then move towards something that has direct relevance to daily life for a lot of people. It's hard. It's hard to connect these things up. They're really, they're really different timescales. But then, you know, the, for me, the way to link them up is just to do the chain of, of you know, these organisms at the seafloor, um, whether or not they return carbon to the atmosphere has determined how much extraneous oxygen is left over in our atmosphere. So that is uh, the fact that I can breathe the partial pressure in, of oxygen in this air is somewhat dependent upon the microbes that were buried, you know, millions of years ago at least, um, is, is determining what I get to breathe. Um, so in that way, we are viscerally connected. I'm in a 10-day quarantine in Oslo on my way up to the Arctic to drill permafrost, take small boreholes of permafrost that's rapidly melting. It's melting so quickly that we feel very urgent about getting up there and getting this work done. And what is it that you're seeking to 
explore in those ice samples. So um, this is soil, this is frozen soil. So the upper layers of this frozen soil um, thaw naturally every spring. So that's the active layer. And that's the layer that creates the most greenhouse gases and has the most interface with the surface world. So we want to study that layer. But what we really want to do, which is a little bit harder to do, is drill down into the permanently frozen layers that have not thawed since the last ice age in this particular location that we're going. And the question is, what's down there? What's lurking down there that is alive and sitting in wait? It will thaw soon. So who's there and what are they doing now? To what extent does the subsurface interact with the human world? To what extent is the subsurface a world that's alienated or separate from humans? And to what extent are there interactions? It's a question of time scale. These microbes have probably not interacted with the atmosphere for 10,000 years about. So through our actions, we are thawing them. And so then they will be metabolizing, they'll be creating gases. One of the big questions that we have coming out of this is with the food that they have around them naturally in this environment, will they turn it into carbon dioxide or will they turn it into methane or will they turn it into N2O gas, um, all of which are going to have different effects on our atmosphere and, and feedbacks for our climate. So what would the ramifications be with the different gases? Is there one that you would be particularly interesting to you or useful? Or Yeah, it's hard to put value judgments on different gases. Um, of course, uh, CO2 is something that per molecule, it's a very powerful greenhouse gas, but our ecosystem has a very good ability to buffer it a little bit. We can take it up in the ocean. So every molecule of CO2 that you add to the atmosphere is not necessarily going to be a free CO2 molecule floating around and continuing to warm. It'll sort of get absorbed somewhere. Methane is a little bit more dangerous per molecule because even though it's maybe not as powerful of a greenhouse gas per molecule, every molecule that you add is not going to get absorbed really anywhere. There's no buffer system to sort of hold it. So our general thinking is that when you add methane to the atmosphere, that's the one that's really going to exacerbate the warming and, and create the greener, make the greenhouse effect worse. I think that something that maybe people don't realize is that the world is covered with microbes. There are microbes everywhere. They're not just in our guts. They're not just the ones that make us sick, but they're inside everything. And they're sort of silently, quietly driving a lot of earth processes. These are the underlying principles that are driving this vast, unknown microbial world. And it turns out that there's really very few places that we can go on earth that we don't find some microbe that has managed to find some way to live. The deep subsurface is something that is kind of hard to explain because people have different definitions for it, but we don't currently have a really good handle on how deep you can go inside the earth and still find something that's alive. We've been drilling down underneath the oceans occasionally. We can go into deep gold mines and take samples from the fractures in the rock. And every time a scientist has done this, they've discovered something that's living. And of course, every time we have to do this, we have to be very careful that it's not contamination. Um, but we've got a pretty good handle on how to sort those things out at this point. And I think personally, I'm interested in it because it is so unknown. I, like most people, am, would love to learn about extraterrestrial life for sure. But we have an intraterrestrial life as well that's underneath our, our feet. And it just seems like 90% of the awe and wonder and 100% more approachable. So <laughs> it's, it's the accessible place I can go to find aliens. We are repelled by other animals. Since Darwin, we have known that species do not exist. But you probably don't really believe that if you are a human. 
We believe in the reality of species, even if we do not believe in their truth. From where I am now, I can't think what attracted me to the mangy fox bone, but something made me reach out for it. I needed to be taught that its flesh was not my flesh. When I looked up human in ecology and zoology textbooks, I saw that the species boundaries were firmly in place. I was surprised. I would have thought that scientists would have been able to show me how I am an animal. I thought that technical concepts like genes or ecosystems could integrate us. But instead I found that the authors found it difficult to talk of humans as a part of animal life. First I went to the ecology textbooks, because I thought this could bridge the distance between humans as a part of life on Earth in general, and the existence which we live locally, in one place at a time. I thought that ecologists would describe how humans, among other animals, fit into habitats in different parts of the world. I thought it would show me how my life is integrated with the foxes who go through my bins, and not only with my human neighbours. To see the human in its own ecological niche is to see how the single body, living its life, has an influence on an ecosystem which we do not necessarily perceive. Humans do not see themselves as animals in their day-to-day -day lives. You've made some amazing discoveries of microbes that seem to live for millions or billions of years. Could you explain how their bodies work? Would we speak about them as having bodies? Organisms, how their organisms work? I mean, the nice thing about using the word bodies is that we humans come up with the definition of it. So if we all agree that we can use bodies, then we can. <laughs> you know, um, there's nothing intrinsic about them. I always think that's so funny how humans or scientists in particular are often accused of anthropomorphism, whereas really it seems to me to be more a choice, a semantic choice to annex a particular term to the human use of that term when it's obvious that variants of it, you know, happen pretty clearly. We are just trying to figure out how they do this. It's really just been in the past 20 years that we figured out that they do this. And we've determined this by figuring out how much energy is available and that it's not quite enough to grow quickly. So they can't. That's sort of a nice sort of limiter on the whole system. Like they cannot be growing and we know how old the sediments are. So they cannot be growing quickly. So they're pretty much the same as they were when they were laid down, you know, a million years or something. Um, I don't think there's evidence that anything lives for a billion years. That's a really long time. There's no theoretical reason why they can't, but we have evidence for about 100 million years, max. That still sounds good. <laughs> it's really long. Yeah. How does that dating process work? So when you go back, I think people know about radiocarbon dating, and that's just because carbon that has 14 neutrons tends to decay at a certain like clockwork. But that is a really fast turnover, radionuclide, they're called. So we can't use radiocarbon dating because that craps out at about 10,000 years or so. So like carbon does that, many, many other elements do this radiocarbon decay as well. And so you can basically, depending on how old your system is, you can pick which radionuclide you want to look at to measure how much it's decayed over time. And so that's one way we can put these things together. Another thing you can do is you can sort of measure the upper sediments and see how fast they're getting deposited there and then extend it down longer. When we work in marine sediments, we can do a lot more with age than we can when we're working in rock because we can see the layers.
What other phenomena have you identified that need more investigation? I think um, this one is pretty controversial, so I won't be um, dogmatic about it, but I think that there's an interesting thing to study at life that lives at the energetic minimum. So, you know, I can say we all need energy for life. And you guys are like, yeah, I know that, obviously. But the amount of energy that we get for every molecule of glucose that we burn with oxygen is about minus 3,000 kilojoules per mole. That's, that's how much we get per molecule. There are microbes that are common. They're not exotic. You know, you touch them when you put your feet down in the muck in the ocean that survive on minus 10 kilojoules per mole. So that's now, what is that, 300 times less energy per molecule of food that they're eating. And we don't really know how something gets by on such little energy. Sort of the thing that is a little more controversial is if you are living so close to zero, thermodynamic zero, which is no energy, you can't live, that's death for sure. You may live in an environment that will switch the direction that your chemical reaction gets will yield you energy. So for us, we're never going to get energy from spitting out oxygen and sugar cubes. That's never, we can't reverse it. We have way out of equilibrium. But for this large group of microbes that live right on the knife's edge, right close to equilibrium, they actually experience, and we know this, this is not conjecture, the reversal of the direction that they can get energy. So the question is, does the same organism catalyze that process, get energy from that process going in one direction, and then when the situation changes, get energy going back in the other direction, like a perpetual motion machine, but not because there's an external factor that's changing the relative concentrations of reactants and products. And how do you begin to think about the environment in that, in that context? Well, the environment is dragging them around by the nose, right? I talked about balls rolling down hills. That's, that's how you can conceptualize a energy gradient. And so maybe the microbe itself is not changing the direction of the hill that tells you what direction the ball rolls down. When the direction of the hill shifts beneath it because of the environment changing, it's just going to get energy going in one direction or the other direction. And that is a uncomfortable thought for a biologist because everything about our experiences, animals, God, it's these like massive energy belching things that we are, is about a very steep hill that there's no, there's nothing you could do to ever crank our hill in the other direction. But with the microbes, they might be able to catch energy going either direction. The word animal, like the word nature, is one which can include the human or exclude it. I know that I am an animal, that in fact I have been able to talk to pheasants. I also know that I am not the same thing as a rotting foxtail. If I found a rotting human limb sticking out of a hedge, I wouldn't take it home as a birthday present for my dad. Is a human an animal? To be an animal is to be an individual and also part of life across the world. Humans can situate themselves inside this life, but we are also able to separate ourselves from it, to look down on it, as in the Earthrise picture or in the biology textbooks which describe human activity, capital letters, as a global force. Perhaps the place where I would understand the collective global animal body, the second body, would not be found by travelling outwards, 
from the human to all the animal bodies in the world, but by travelling inwards, down, into the body at a microscopic level, where different species all have chromosomes or strings of genes. And so I moved across to the library, to the genetics bookshelves. Are there implications for use there, or is it just a fascinating insight at this stage? I don't know. I'm, I'm not a good engineer. I don't think about the uses for things. But, I mean, that's one reason why I like to tell as many people as I can about things, because I think some people are very, very good at, at seeing uses for things. I was interested in the fact that these microbes come into the world without human stories, which is not the case for most species. Most species have a lot of mythology and culture and associations, I guess. I can think of creation myths with the kind of earth's mud and things like that, but there's nothing, they, they come into the world kind of pristine, I suppose, in a sense, and, and politically pristine as well. And I wondered just what it's like to discover a species and to bring something into the human world. Until you said that, I hadn't thought about the fact that these are the few types of living beings that don't have human stories already prescribing what they're supposed to be like. That's an interesting way of putting it. For me, it's thrilling to discover new things every single time. But it's it has a little bit of a, a bitterness because when I say we discover, you know, a lot of what I do is work with genes. So describing a very nice, complete new genome from something that's a phylum, so like very high level taxonomic group, invertebrates, like everything with a spine is in one phylum. So we discover a new phylum of microbes every few months. It's just incredible how much is out there. But I'm describing it with a genome, and that's powerful. That's a lot of information. But then I, I take that information, which is in the form of, you know, just the four nucleotides of DNA, A, G, C, T, in, in a particular order, and that's what I've got. So I, I know exactly that this thing is new, but then I try to read it and make sense of it. And the only language I can use to understand this really bizarre new genome is what we already know from the known microbes. So I'm using our preconceived notions about what's known to sort of map onto this new genome, what it could be doing, what enzymes it has, what functions it has, what it breathes, what it eats, what it does, and it's limiting. So I think what I want to convey is that I discover new phyla frequently, but I have I really discovered them? I can barely describe them. I've identified that they exist. That's that's it. Um, but beyond that, that's that's something either I in the future or somebody else is going to have to figure out. So then the only resources you have to describe them are through relationship, through existing known. And why is that the case? How did you establish the knowledge or understanding of the things that you know about that you're then relating them to? Well, that's standing on a huge body of literature of yeah. painstaking physiological work. There's people who do the laborious work of chopping out genes from a microbe and seeing what it does, seeing how that changes the functions and then putting the gene back in and seeing if it regains the functions. That is how we go through these pathways. That's how we know how metabolism even works for anything. And this, of course, has huge consequences for medicine and for understanding life. And is there anything that you would like to remain a mystery? No. <laughs> That's easy. Not a thing. <laughs> This series of podcasts is produced by Undead Matter, initiated and convened by Sophie J. Williamson. For more information about the Undead Matter program, please visit us on Instagram at undead underscore matter.